Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. Wanderlust is something that defines true sailors. And in the case of today's guest, it also inspired significant risk-taking that's helped her find her true passion and calling. Louisa Gould is my guest. She is the owner of the award-winning Louisa Gould Gallery in Vineyard Haven, Massachusetts, which, by the way, just celebrated its 16th anniversary, so big congratulations to Louisa. She is also the author of Wooden Boats of Martha's Vineyard. That's a book that she wrote that includes some of her own maritime photography. I first met Louisa, who is now a friend, several years ago when I wandered into her terrific gallery. She is a Renaissance woman, if ever there was one. She's a former Wall Street analyst turned America's Cup sailing team member, turned competitive sailing and yacht race photographer, and now gallery owner, among many other things that we'll talk about. She has used her versatility, her diverse skills, and her business savvy to not only support her own art, but also to inspire and support others who share her love of art and the sea, and also to make art accessible to a broader population. Now, if you are a regular listener of She Said, She Said, and we certainly hope that you are, you'll recall that Louisa hosted our conversation with artist and creative teacher Teresa Gerard in episode 65. We are recording this podcast at Louisa's amazing gallery, the Louisa Gould Gallery. So we do have guests who will be wandering in and out if you hear some background noise. Louisa, welcome to She Said, She Said. Laura, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be on your podcast. I've been listening for over a year since we first met last year, and you have such a great group of people on the show. I'm thrilled to be part of it. Thank you. Well, we are delighted to have you. It's a real pleasure, and thank you for hosting us once again. Of course. <laughs> so let's start with this notion of your love of the sea, which I think really your whole life kind of culminates around this notion of beauty and the sea. How did that begin? Uh, with my parents. Both of my parents um, had summered on Martha's Vineyard and have been for generations. So as, as far as I can remember, actually there's a photograph of my mother eight months pregnant sailing uh, on a wooden boat with me. Um, so I was born into a sailing family and all of our, all of our summers and all of our holidays were sailing. Uh-huh. And then also racing. So I learned from an early age how a man and a woman both communicated um, how to do strategy and tactics on a boat. And just to, to swim, we would stay if we could at the beach until late, late at night. My mother just loved the water. And where we lived off island along Meadow, Massachusetts, we still could overlook a river because my parents had to be close to the sea. So I think I inherited it. What are those early or maybe your earliest memory of sort of loving the sea and loving being out on the water? We would go to church as a family and go racing. It was just something we did as a family. It's mm-hmm. just something we always did. Your early career actually took a pretty different direction. You went off to college. You continued to sail on the weekends. Correct. Sort of talk, talk sure. me through, yeah, what sure. happened next. So in university, I didn't join a sailing team. I ended up 
on a crew team as a cox because I happened to be petite and my legs were not long enough to row. And that was a difficult point in my life when I had to accept that I couldn't do something because of my physical limitations, Mm. which isn't easy when you think that you can do anything when you're young or at at any age. However, I accepted it. And um, when I was in a crew team, later on, I realized that it was an invaluable lesson because you have to coach and be a leader for eight different, it was an eight seat boat, eight different personalities. And you have to steer the boat and, and be a leader and get into the headset of eight different people, but still not lose someone else and be encouraging. So later on in life, I, I realized that that was an invaluable lesson. So I didn't get burnt out on a sailing program in college, which I know a lot of friends did who went through yacht club programs and, and something. So for my sailing, it was once I was in Wall Street, I was able to start racing on weekends. Mm-hmm. So in university, I wanted to be able to give back. I studied political science and Chinese because I had Chinese in high school and I always kept art in my life. Art's been a theme ever since a young child. How hard was that to not so much turn your back on it, but to resist the urge to go into something that's more creative? I, I had a very firm knowing in myself that I loved art and it was something I enjoyed doing, but I had the mindset to say, how would I feel if I had to make a painting to pay my rent. I mean, that's a different story when something is a pure joy and hobby, and I had won awards, but I did really say, okay, I, I will do something later, but not not now. Interesting. And I'm always thinking it would be like when I retired or whenever I would say it, I would physically put my arm out, like, no, it's, it's, it's a long way away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so political science yep. and Chinese to Wall Street. Talk right. me through. Sure. So I'm going to give my age away now. Yikes. Uh, Tiananmen Square. I was all set to go teach English in China. And uh, Tiananmen Square happened and all the programs shut down. I mean, we, my parents, we had already all, all gone to the orientations and I knew what university and everything. And China really shut down at that, at that point. And my parents had always encouraged me to do whatever I wanted to do. I had to get good grades, though, in order to do that. But at that point, my father said, you're going to Wall Street. And that was a little bit out of the blue for me. And my mom's like, go do other things. And my dad was very firm. But did you go back to business school? Like, no. How did no, you... No, I went straight from um, from university to... I. At that point, I thought J- Japan and China were similar. So there was... I, I still wanted to utilize my Chinese language and language, really. Um, so I worked for a Japanese bank, was my first bank on Wall Street, right at 2 Wall Street, right across from the exchange, which was pretty fun when you're mm-hmm. right out of college. Um, what were you doing? I was an analyst. So um, I had had a background in math and statistics and economics. I almost minored in economics as well. So, you know, and, and being just political science, part of that is having a background in economics mm-hmm. as well. So uh, banks were hiring um, analysts who basically did well in school and generally could think mm-hmm. and think outside of, of the box. It's interesting because my dad ended up passing away two years later. So I think, and again, in hindsight, it was his way of making sure that I was secure and stable mm-hmm. and maybe not going off doing the art thing. But that's just what I think. He never, ever said that. He never said that no, to you? No, But um, I'm very glad that I did. I mean, I have the, an art background and I continued art. Even though when I was working on Wall Street, I took classes at the Art Student League and Parsons, fantastic 
programs when I could make it I couldn't always make it and I'd show up in my little suit (laughs) but I wanted to keep it as as part of my life when I could Um, but invaluable lessons working on Wall Street Um, you when you first go to the street you're taught that you don't know anything and when you graduate college you think you know everything so that was interesting and being a a young woman working on the street you really kind of have to find your way and you have to quickly learn how that universe works, and you learn a lot about yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's constantly being challenged, and I love to learn. So when we would get a deal book, I'm maybe a little bit of a nerd, but I would love the deal book, because you're reading about an entire new industry. And what is this deal, and how are you gonna finance it, and what's the inventory, and who's involved? So to me, it wasn't the same thing every day. And you go to the meeting and you meet amazing people. I mean, some of my first meetings were federated department stores in RJ Bay and Misco, uh, you know, some, and had it access pretty quickly with other uh, banks that I worked with to working directly with CEOs and CFOs at the age of 26. Mm-hmm. As a woman sitting down and we were creating new products, because I was with Fuji Bank at that point, which was the third largest or second largest commercial bank. You are a creative person by nature. You're this interesting left brain, right brain combination. When you just described looking at analyst reports and really sort of having this voracious appetite for learning new things, how much of your the creativity that you've worked to cultivate in your life, how, how, what kind of impact do you think that had in your work on Wall Street? It has a lot because after I think it was seven, six years after being a corporate analyst and, and doing structured finance and levered finance and, and LB, you know LBOs and blah, 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 a host of different things, I was like, well, what else is there? And um, I had a friend who had gone to um, uh, Falcon and it was business school and he was working for AIG. He's like, you should come over. They have this new group, AIG Risk Finance. I'm like, AIG's an insurance company. I'm in finance with a little attitude. And he's like, no, no, no. Over 50% of the revenues are financial. And they're starting this new group that's merging the insurance and the financial aspect of this company together. So I ended up interviewing. And it was a very small team of very, very bright people who were pulling it together. So I went over. And it was very interesting because we were, AIG, I think as a lot of people know now, was a Fortune 2 company. Mm-hmm. And this group had access to all the different areas of AIG all around the world. And we were, our task was to basically create new financial products. So, I mean, numbers. And this was what year? 96 that I went over to AIG Risk Finance. So we created weather derivatives. We worked with AIG FP. We worked with, it was really interesting because mm-hmm. none of this had been done before. And I had done some creative, you know, as much as I could in that range within the banking. Um, and just meeting people from, again, all around the world and, and traveling when you're young. But really, it was the creative process and working with some mathematicians and actuaries, brilliant minds. And you just take a big board and you have a solution. So, for example, a company has a risk. Let's do Disney. Disney at that point says, okay, well, how are we going to mitigate or streamline our revenues when we have rain? Because people aren't going to come to our theme parks when it's raining. So we created weather derivatives. So if it's raining, so financial products with insurance wrappers, so you're paying, you know, there's all these different ways that you could do it, but a financial product out of just a need. Uh, So you look at GE or I work directly with GM, 
Boeing, for example. Mm-hmm. So very, it was very, very interesting. But after three and a half years, and I was starting to sail as much as I could, things were changing. Regulation was coming in. I remember FASB 13. Right. And then I had an opportunity. And to, things changed pretty dramatically even, even more then, after that Right. Point. So I was there kind of at a, at a very cutting-edge time, mm-hmm. and our job was to create new things. Anyway, then my sailing kind of got the better of me at that point. Yeah. So let's talk about that. You've, you've continued to sail, which I find a bit stunning, knowing how demanding jobs are on Wall Street. So you're finding time to sail. You're finding time to some degree to pursue your art on the side. Um, but the sailing, I would think, would take up a lot of a lot of time. But the sailing for Western Long Island Sound, most people had a day job. I mean, a lot of them are in finance or in Manhattan mm-hmm. or Western Long Island Sound. So the regattas are on weekends. So a lot of weekend sailors. So weekend sailors. So it's pretty much there's a schedule from uh, April to the beginning of November. So you know when the different regattas are. And the more that you're sailing or the bigger, better boats, bigger teams um you sign on to be crew for the season essentially so even my roommate was like when is the sailing season done so because i want to get married i'm like okay so you can get married the third weekend in november after my my regatta because you make a commitment and there were times that i was at jfk or LaGuardia airport and my boss is like no you're not going to miami for the weekend sailing you're coming back so i mean you try the best you can and then i even had my sailing clothes underneath my desk because i also belonged to the manhattan yacht club which was right right there so you literally could go from your office to your desk in 15 minutes but i couldn't commit to that that was like i was standby if it could work out Uh so i mean i tried but it wasn't i mean work came first yeah so you had a really interesting opportunity around 1999 Mm -hmm. to join an america's cup team talk about how that opportunity came about and also for those who are not sailors like myself what does that mean? Uh, well, first of all, the America's Cup is the pinnacle of racing, yacht racing. It's uh, something that was established in Cowes in England in 1851. So it's a very long-standing st- uh, Corinthian sport. What that means is people are racing not for money, but for a cup. Usually it's the America's Cup happens to be a Tiffany, beautiful Tiffany cup that's about three feet tall. That is just still amazing. England hosted it, and then America won it, and America... The the New York Yacht Club held it for 136 years. And then uh, Australia took it. It came back to the States. So it became more international, which I think is nice. I mean, it was great to go to Newport um, and have the cup there. However, I think it's good for the sport that it's been more international. Uh, Something I think is important is right timing. I, and very young when I was sailing here with my parents, I, I still remember where we were out here in Vineyard Haven Sound. And I said to myself one day, I was like, I want to sail on the America's Cup. How old were you? Old enough to remember. I want to say 8 to 13, mm-hmm. somewhere in that range, young. And I was just uh, kind of like, hmm. Um, so I had a friend, Dan- Danielle Gallo, who knew this woman, Don Riley, and the Corel 45s, which was a high-performance yacht, boats and were racing in the city and I think it was a Wednesday and she was was going to take the day off and she was like come come meet Dawn I said take the day off wow uh, let me see if I can okay and that day changed my life I took the day off I was able to meet Dawn um and Dawn Riley she's in the new movie Maiden yes and she'll be here uh, oh later this month um and Dawn 
although she's not that much older than I am, has always been a hero for women. She has already raced, had already raced in two Whitbreads, which are now called the Volvo Around the World races. She'd already been involved in two America's Cup programs. And this was before, I mean, there weren't that many women who no, were sailing no, at the time. No, right? no, no. So, um, Bill, she was with Bill Kolk for A2, a, um, America 2, and then America uh, Cubed. Um, so I just kept in touch with her and kind of sailing. She helped connect me with other women in England when I did the Facet race mm-hmm. and some other races. Because sailing, when you get on a boat with people, it's not, okay, what your resume says. It's really as you need to speak with other people you've sailed with before. Because yacht racing is not about just doing your job. It's truly, truly teamwork. Mm-hmm. You are on a boat and things will happen. Things will happen quickly and safety is first and foremost it can be fun but you really have to know what you're doing and how to interact so it's the physical aspect and a lot of it's emotional how are you going to deal with what just happened keeping your head quickly and being safe Mm -hmm. uh hopefully having some fun (laughs) so you met don yep you joined the team. Talk about what role you played. What sure. were you doing? So as I was coming from Wall Street and everyone else on the boat were professional yacht racers, yacht designers. I mean, the pinnacle of the sailing team. And I understood that I was the last person to come on board. I was on the B boat. So the B boat is the testing boat. Okay. So each team has two boats because you always want to go out and do two boat testing. So if you're changing anything. So it's really interesting. If you have two boats that are sailing, you can be 10 feet away. You could be in different wind. Hmm. So, but you still have to do the sparring Mm -hmm. because a lot of the boats and the technology at that point, they used to have skirts around the bottoms to protect the technology and secrets. So you need to have two boats that can spar and sail together. So I was on the B team and my job was to release runners. And although I had sailed on really big boats and pit in different positions, America's Cup boats have 14 tons of pressure. I mean, and that's why most of the people on America's Cup boats are men. Hmm. The physical strength. At that point, it sort of changed a little bit. So, for for example, if you do pit, you're releasing the halyards or all the, the ropes that come down. You're controlling basically all of the ropes for the spinnakers in the center of the boat. So I've done that a lot on 72-foot um, boats. So mm-hmm. I was used to that. Um, but releasing the runners, what the runners are is the... there's the mast and then there's these lines that basically hold up the mast and the back so every time that the boat tacks or jibes they have to be released on one side and then taken up on the back and there are big drums behind Mm -hmm. the the wheel and how many people are there's just two two behind so i would release and then this other person scott gregory fantastic sailor uh would take up would take it up and then I would help kind of grind grind it in. Mm-hmm. So if I did it, the timing was right, flawless, no one would know. If I messed up, I could lose my hand, um, the rig could come down, which is $10 million, or someone could get killed. So just a little bit of pressure. So if you had the right timing, I didn't have to have the physical strength. I see. Or even anyone who had the right timing, but you had to have the right timing down. Any stories that you can tell about things not going so well? Um, you know, when you to join any sports team, especially if they're the last person kind of coming on and an underdog, you know, people can let you know how they might feel about that. This was a lot of Kiwi guys on a, on a boat. Mm-hmm. This was in New Zealand. And, I, and this was 1999 or so. 1999. And I want to say I appreciate that many of them were forthcoming and very straightforward about how they felt. So it was on the table. 
So how did you handle that? I knew from playing sports, I happened to play soccer my whole life and other sports, team sports. And working on Wall Street is despite who you might know, you have to be part of the team and you have to prove that you've got the medal to stay there. And it was particularly difficult for me because I just left a corner office on Wall Street to come do this, which was the dream. And granted, I was kind of a peon in the whole team and I got that. I had to I had to pay my dues. It was really tough. So much so that one day I went to the bar and the head instigator who's a very, very well known sailor and I respect him. I was just like, oh no, now what? And he just looked at me, he's like, Louisa, you've got staying power. I'll never forget that moment. He's like, what are you drinking? I'm like, phew, I've made it. (laughs) (laughs) So I just share that because it doesn't matter who you are or where you are, but you have to show up and do the best you can in whatever situation you are. And that stretched me and that pushed me and it was very difficult and I made it. So I'm struck by the parallels between the fact that you were coming from Wall Street male-dominated, particularly at the time in which you were there. Certainly there were women there, but but still very male-dominated. Still is, by the way. Sailing, again, very male-dominated. How much did the Wall Street experience sort of help you in integrating with a team that had these big male personalities? I'm going to go back to my parents, because my parents were in sailing a boat. They communicated between a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. So I grew up that way, that, you know, the family table, if we discussed politics were discussed or things were discussed and everyone had an opinion. And even on Wall Street, absolutely male dominated. And I'm going to go back again to team sports, being a cox on a boat, being on a soccer team, being part of a team. I like being part of a team and understanding maybe where you can fit in and you might have a job, but also understanding maybe where you could help communicating, um, as, as much as possible. And that's easy to say communicating, but pro- <laughs> proving, you know, like I want to be part of this team at the risk finance team. I'm going to stay late. You know, sometimes it was bringing the deal down to the bar. Did I necessarily want to go to the bar? But you know what? If I did that, I was showing that I was part of the team. I would get my deals signed. You know, you had to be part of part of the group and show that I'm just not here. and I'm going to take off. And then it's fun because it's not just you, you're bouncing ideas off and it's, tr- it's establishing trust. You mentioned you had reached that corner office position at the point in which you had this opportunity to sail on an America's Cup team. That's a very big deal to leave a job that you had been working toward with no assurance necessarily that you could come back. Maybe you could, maybe you couldn't. But the idea of losing momentum stops an awful lot of people from pursuing their dreams. Talk about how you calculated that risk and why you made the decision to leave the corner office and the big paycheck and sort of this job that you had been working toward and ultimately achieved. Several fold is I remember when I was in my office, there was this boat down in the harbor because AIG was at 60 Wall Street, so it's right downtown. So the, at the top of the building, you could have views of the whole harbor and out to the, the, the sound and beyond. And there was this boat. It was, uh, it was waiting for a, a window or weather window for the wind to do across Atlantic. And it just caught my eye. It's just moving ever so slowly. I mean, way down in the harbor. And I just couldn't kind of get it out of my mind. And I had talked with the group about going to New Zealand and 
which kind of wanted these terms and everything else and I wasn't getting my terms you know okay so then I wasn't going to do it and I kept kind of going back to it but this is really really what I want to do so what I want to do AIG didn't want to give me a leave of absence because we didn't know how long the team was going to be I mean they support that so I, I, I said I'm going to leave and it was hard I remember my cousin here mm-hmm. we had a walk he's after dinner he's like come walk with me he's older he's like you're not married you don't have a mortgage you don't have any debt you don't have children go go do it so I had people in my family and friends who encouraged me to go do it when I left I thought I was going to go do that and go right back to the street we'll do that and maybe do a little yacht racing so I did how old were you at the time 32 so luckily I had some some men (laughs) who said Louisa when you're you know go go do that and just call us when you're when you're done when you get it out, when you get this out of your system, essentially, call us up and come back. It wasn't as hard to go do that because I thought I was going back, and maybe overall that's how it needed to happen mm-hmm. because maybe I, it was hard enough just to do that. I put everything in storage in Manhattan, thinking I was definitely going back. However, the timing for me to go back was the week of nine eleven, so I was had my interviews lined up and I had done and was very fortunate and grateful that I had been able to do a lot of traveling in addition to doing a lot of the yacht races I had wanted to do around the world Mm -hmm. and I was ready to go back but um, there was a different message and a different path for me at that point. So you picked up race photography Mm -hmm. somewhere along the way how did that happen? Sure so after our team made it through the semifinals which was fantastic and since I had just given up my job and moved halfway across the world um and I have an art background <clears throat> and had just bought this amazing Canon professional rig um I stayed on as helping out with the corporate sponsors for the team and also uh, photographing for the team and were you a trained photographer at this point no I'm actually more trained in uh oil painting um but I've I know how to shoot I take some, some photography mm-hmm. but I think it's sort of innate as an artist yeah. I mean uh, but you didn't, did you take classes to learn photography? I think, in, I think in high school, but I didn't take anything in college. Okay. And, you know, taking pictures of the Italian guys on the Prada team was, you know, who I happened to know was pretty fun, too. <laughs> I'll be honest about that. Uh, so it was nice. It was be, being able to, to stay on in a, in a corporate way that mm-hmm. I had that skill set. And also, so that's how the photography started. Okay, so, so walk us forward. So you're pursuing photography. You, 9-11 happens, you've still, you've planned to go back to Wall Street. Obviously, that door is closed, at least for a period of time. What, what next? Uh, that's really was, I think, the hardest part for me, um, instead of leaving Wall Street to go sailing, was, well, what is next? Right. And then you really had to come to terms with the fact that you weren't going to go back, at least not at that point. I really had to do some soul searching at that point. And I, talk, I have a lot of conversations with people here at the gallery. They want to come to the vineyard. They want to retire. And I said, what, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And here I am, like, you know, I haven't, I haven't retired, but what am I going to do? So, hmm, what about that art thing I promised to do? And I had wanted to open a gallery. It's like, is that someday now? I have no experience running a gallery, so I'm not going to do that in New York City. That would be silly. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> There's family house here in the vineyard. If I was to start doing my own artwork, okay, that would be financially a little easier. So I started doing it here in the vineyard. And it was a leap of faith because as a business person, I kept doing the financial models and it wasn't really going to work out. 
in the short run anyway, so I had to understand what I was getting myself into, what running a gallery means, what, when you're going to make money, um, and making a commitment to do that. So I did it. It was a leap of faith. Yeah. Um, kind of went against my financial modeling background. <laughs> Why? What, what, what made you take that I think leap? it was something in innate, and again, I, I, I always sort of had made a promise that I wanted to keep art in my life, and it was something that I wanted to do, and I, I think if you listen to my story and I think a lot of other people's stories is for me is accepting right timing in my head this wasn't the right time to do this this was supposed to be when I was retired and old right (laughs) guess what maybe the time's now and if not now when and if not this then what yeah and if this is what's speaking to me and I'm getting upset every time I'm telling myself that this doesn't make sense to do it, then there's something innate or within me that really does want to do it. And I think it's taking that leap of faith as knowing enough or feeling enough to do it and not having all the answers. You know, it takes a lot of courage, a lot of courage to transition for anyone. And you might know what you're doing and might not be happy with all of it, but we know what that is. Mm-hmm. What is around the corner? And it's something that's inspiring and exciting, but there's fear, you know? So being able to walk through that and whatever that might be and not having the answers. What advice can you give to somebody who's listening who might be thinking about pursuing that, you know, what maybe? her family or friends say that's the craziest thing I've ever heard what do you say to her how does she make that decision and know when the timing's right to take that leap well interestingly enough there's a a woman in New Zealand right after the America's Cup I I think I was meant to meet her for another reason she said to me and I share this with everyone because I think it was so important for me is what excites you the most and for me, I was lucky enough to be traveling around Australia and the South Pacific after the cup ended. Very fortunate. And all of a sudden, it, it was a couple of months later, it came to me as color. Color excites me. Look where we are, but when you travel, it's the colors. Color excites me. And maybe that might change. I, I don't know. But it wasn't something that was just off the top of my head. So what? It's a very abstract notion, right? Right, but think about it. For anyone who's listening, really, what excites you? You know? Is it when you go on vacation, you see that turquoise water in the Caribbean, or the green of a palm tree, or the strawberry, the red, or the color of your summer sherbet? I don't know what to say, you know? But so, and that's just, just for me, is, is color. And is right timing, I talked about that, is... Uh, if you have an intention and want to do something and also being open, I mean, being open to right timing, I think can be very difficult and you have to be in your truth and well, what's, what's your truth? What speaks to you? What speaks to you? Being honest with yourself, I think can be very, very difficult. Many things I find interesting about your story, but one thing in particular is the fact that you did have this financial background. You knew what it was going to take to make a gallery successful. You knew what the risks were. It can be awfully easy to take all that data that stacks up on one side of the ledger, where this is really, really hard, 
versus on the side of the ledger in which you know in your heart that this is what you're supposed to do. How did you, as this left brain, right brain person, reconcile all of this? Well, I did leverage it. <laughs> uh, well, there's a risk, you know, if people don't buy art, if there's a downturn. I mean, the gallery is now 16 years, and we went through the Great Recession of 2008. Right. I learned a lot about art and money and people's relationship with money and, and et cetera, and how do you stay the course and change or not change for your business model to, to stay afloat. Um, however, even though I left the street, I didn't want to give up finance, because what if I can't sell paintings? What am I going to do? Also, um, the, we're on Martha's Vineyard, and we're very, very busy in the summer. I'm fortunate that people, again, come in from around the world, and and our sales are mostly in the summer. But we live in Martha's Vineyard, which is an island off the East Coast in New England, and it's quiet in the winter. So what are you going to do to fill your revenue gap, but also a little bit of a brain drain? Mm-hmm. So I started a consulting company. Hmm just to, to, to leverage. A lot of people were asking me to do things for them. I'm like, wait a second, too many people are asking me to do financial modeling or their spreadsheets or anything else. So I started a consulting company, um, Long Point Solutions. So I had that for 13 years. And that was mostly for um, small companies, up to a million, maybe 5 million. And I could do anything on the financial side, but also right, left brain, well, you need an ad campaign. I could, you know, create a TV commercial for you. We could do websites for you. I could shoot all of your photography. Well, let's sit down. You want to start a company. What do you want to say? And we could do it not only the numbers, but we could do it visually as well. So it was essentially a whole package. And that was exciting because it could, you know, mirror and I could take on clients or not and travel or not, depending on what was happening here. Um, and it kept me engaged up here and connected yeah. as well. But using all of your skill sets. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a beautiful thing to be able to use your art, your financial background, your experience, your expertise, your, your love and your passion for storytelling, for putting together, I mean, the whole thing, you're using every piece of your background and experience, which is really exciting. And to help someone build a business. And sometimes it was like, no, you actually shouldn't go into business. And just being brutally honest with someone saying, you could pay me all you want and we could go forward, but I don't really think that this is a solid business model. Again, being being honest with other people. However, in uh, 2013, we were pregnant. So I kind of unwound the financial, the, that company, not knowing what it was all going to be like, first child, later in life. And um, I'd also you know, kept in touch with business people around here in Off Island and then I had opportunity they uh the local radio station approached me Mm -hmm. and asked me to be their first executive director uh so i went in and joined them for four years and did a full turnaround for the the station started a major donor program um so learned all about raising money for a nonprofit and uh, working with the board mostly in in new york city so again keeping you know left right brain and it's a music mostly a music radio station so you know going to music festivals around the country staying involved with the arts Mm -hmm. I left the radio station after four years. Um, they were 600000 and the whole left them with 600000 in cash that basically did a full turnaround, so much so that they're buying a, a building now, and, and they're sustainable. So I'm very happy and proud of what I was able to accomplish for them. Uh, but another local uh, nonprofit approached me, the Martha's Vineyard Chamber Music Society. So now I'm their executive director over, what, 15 months or so, and, and doing a, a full turn, a turnaround for them biggest change management that's happened in 49 years. So excited about that and how we can uh, reposition them for the next 49 years. What is that ability to impact an organization in that way, using your skill sets and impact them in that way? What does that mean to you? 
It means that I've, I have a chance to give back. Um, I think it's important for me um, using whatever skill sets that I have to give back. You know, someone it might be a nurse uh, or teaching. So I have this financial background. I have this creative background. It's a skill set that's, I think, different uh, to go in and to help. And an, another life hack, I, I think I, it was very important, is to listen. To listen to all of the stakeholders, whoever they might be. It could be a Fortune 2 company. It could be a small nonprofit. It could be whatever. Is to listen to the stakeholders that have been there. And then to step back as a business person and say, well, what is the what is the landscape? What's the environment? What's the social fabric of the society? And what's realistic? Mm-hmm. So it's and in, to, to talk with the right people to maybe help steer them towards what I think is financial. And, and I think it's interesting is when you come into any organization or you're going into a deal in a different industry is not being enmeshed in that industry. For example, you know, when I joined radio, I know nothing about radio. I learned about radio, but business and people are still business and people. So it's being able to bring, I think, a fresh perspective is important. Yeah, yeah. Back to the gallery, one question that I had not have not had a chance to ask you about is how you think about talent selection, how you think about both the selection of the artists and the collaboration that you have with that artist in helping them sell their works, and also the accessibility piece, which I mentioned in the intro, because I know art accessibility is also important to you. So talk to me a bit about your vision and what you're trying to create with what you have created, but, but kind of what your intention is with the gallery. Uh, my intention with the gallery is almost n- not f- financial in a sense, I, um, although I did the financial modeling t- <laughs> to come into it. When I worked on Wall Street, I said, someday I want to own my own company and work with really nice people. So the gallery in my selection has been very organic, mm. very organic. In what way? So many artists will approach me from everywhere, essentially. Um, I mean, being able to show as an artist on Martha's Vineyard has prestige. We're lucky to be here. So I have a wide variety of people to choose from. I think there's only one or two artists in 16 years maybe that I have approached, and that was maybe to complement what we have here. Uh, to me, as an artist and working with artists, it's very personal. When someone is doing a painting, it's of and from them. They're putting their energy into it. And this might sound funny, but I mean, when it comes to a painting, color is frequency. You learn that in art school. I mean, when you look at a painting, oftentimes it's going to evoke a feeling for you. And we can intellectualize why, okay, those boats are lined up and I like the colors and the composition. Okay, but it spoke to you on some level. But what is that? So the artist and the art that I choose has to work for me personally. It has to feel right. And the, the artist have to be nice and, and, and honest and, uh, and open and, and, and good to work with. Um, because it's, a, it's definitely a relationship. I rotate arts about every three years or so, so I want to keep it new. I want to keep it fresh. Um, I feel it's very important for people to come into the gallery and, and see something different, mm-hmm. and I have a reputation for that. 
um, I really like people and I, you know, being here in the winter, you know, when people come in, you know, you want to talk with them, you want to meet people. Right. So it's been this, how we ni- I know, this <laughs> nice, but it is because yeah. you're here. So when people come in, it's, you really want to meet people and connecting people with the art or not, or it's building relationships and it's relationships with the artist. There's some artists who can sell directly, but I think a lot of artists are really want to be focused in the studio and on their craft. Mm-hmm. So being a gallerist is a conduit between the artists and the buyers. Your background and your love of sailing, you continue to sail, you continue to engage in race photography. One thing we didn't talk about is the process that you use as a race sail photographer. And I never feel like I get the terminology quite right, but a photographer who is taking photographs of these amazing races, it's not like you can stand on the dock and take a picture. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. No. Talk, talk, tell our audience about what's involved in getting that perfect shot. Well, you have to be there at the right time with the right lighting. So how do you do that? With any photography, you have to do a shot list of what do you ultimately want to get a shot of? What are the angles that you want to get? What would be that ideal shot? So you have that in the back of your mind always, but it's the conditions. So it's it's a challenge. It's man versus man. It's man versus nature. Understanding, I mean, I fully understand the, the dynamics and the angles of boats and being on a boat so basically you don't I don't use a tripod on a boat your legs are a tripod so spending so much time on the water I could look at the water I mean my body innately knows how to brace for different waves because you're a sailor because I'm a sailor understanding the light understanding the weather ahead of time I mean you you really learn that when you're yacht racing as you become a weather person and you can you're anticipating what the weather is going to do I've done a lot of other sports photography too the Kentucky Derby and the Olympics and and that type of stuff but yacht racing is just it's I think that's why I even like yacht racing is because it's yet another element that you need to think about it's always changing it's challenging right and I'm on the water (laughs) on the water or you've also photographed from a helicopter yep so at times yeah I love being in the air I love flying um so shooting from a helicopter is really fun um, especially when you get some crazy pilots who can take you down low and really get into the position that you want um, from airplanes going up rigs. So again, it's all, it's a challenge. Any harrowing experiences? Uh, Key West Race Week 2002, I was with a helicopter pilot and he's like, say, have you been up in a helicopter? I'm like, oh, sure. Yeah, I've got this right. I've been in a helicopter, America's Cup, blah, 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 blah. <clears throat> well, this guy was a Vietnam vet helicopter pilot, had both of the doors off been done that before however his approach to get down to a boat was nothing that I had ever been on before instead of going down kind of in a direct forward motion to go down the boat he would go and back into a situation so it was very counterintuitive it was 35 knots the doors are off (laughs) okay (laughs) (laughs) nothing harrowing about that (laughs) and again I'm not even five three did the the step down to that rung on a helicopter i couldn't reach so if anything had happened yeah I'm, like, I'm, understa- <laughs> I'm understanding the risks here okay so it was uh but it was it was fun and he got me 
exactly where I wanted to get for the shot. He was fantastic. And you could tell he was smiling just a little bit in the beginning to see until I could get my bearings. But I got them quickly. Yeah. Oh. But it's about that notion of teamwork, right? Mm-hmm. You're working with somebody who you've never met before, you've never worked with before, and you have to immediately develop that camaraderie and that collaboration that enables you both to do your jobs. Right. Very different jobs, but, but you're sort of going for the same objective. Right. And it's a level of trust. Yeah. Even when you're photographing, I do family portraits and stuff too, and you have to, you meet people and you have a family of 32 or a wedding, is establishing trust very quickly. This notion of grit and determination is obviously a theme that runs <laughs> pretty heavily through sailing. It's a bit of an understatement. You're, old, you're a mother now, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, Precious James, who's five. Just turned six. Just turned six, who's adorable. Talk about how you're working to instill this notion of grit and determination, which clearly was instilled in you and maybe comes naturally to some degree. How are you working to instill that in him? That's a great question. Uh, Persevere's trying to follow through on things. He wants to do something and not always finish it. So you sound like a mother is just, uh, you know, you have to finish. I'm going to sound funny. Put the toilet seat down. Uh, Finish your breakfast. No, you can't have a treat. So it's just perseverance. Uh, for grit and determination, I think he is, and it's funny having a child, because you could see your own personalities. No, of course you want to do something else and not pick up the clothes off that, but just instilling this those same things. That might sound mundane and boring, but I think that's a lot of what it is, is persistence and, and continuity. But also doing and saying anything, if I say something, I have to, I have to follow through on it so he knows he can't get away with it. Which is also building a level of trust between us. Yeah. You have to stay consistent. Even on those days that you're a tired mom and you don't want to ask a child to do something one more time. Without being overbearing and not having a child shut down and still listening. Mm -hmm. I think those are probably some of the hardest things we've talked about in this whole interview. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's so basic and so simplistic. And yet it's so important and it really is where the answer lies much of the time. So we ask everybody who comes on this podcast for a single piece of advice or life hack. You mentioned listening is a big one. It could be a mantra. It can be sort of your North Star that you consistently tell yourself, maybe advice you would have given your younger self. What is yours? We talked about right timing. Also to be curious. You know, why is that? Or why did someone do that? Or what, you know, to ask questions of other people. Ask questions of yourself. Yeah, it's great. It's wonderful to be with you. And you as well. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for doing this. Really great to be here. Wonderful to be in the gallery. We will have some terrific photos from today's visit, along with a link to Louise's website in the show notes. A special thanks to my able assistant and intern, Kat Mitchell, who is a rising sophomore at the University of Richmond, who is fantastic. And she's going to be taking the photographs for Louisa and me today. And for all of you listening, I hope that you'll check out the website where you'll find all of our inspiring and insightful guests. That's www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. All of our guests, like Louisa, are working to make the world a better place. You can also follow my adventures with the podcast and all of my guests on Instagram, Facebook, and the blog on LinkedIn. As always, thanks so much for listening and for being part 
of the growing She Said, She Said community of amazing and inspiring women who are having a positive impact on others each and every day. Thank you.